Our message today is going to be from Ecclesiastes, in, in which uh, the person identified as the preacher uh, examines life and tries to make, uh, make sense of it. And so we're going to be hearing a, a portion of that. Evan Boggs is going to be reading that to us uh, for our study today. Ecclesiastes 2, 12 to 17. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For the wise, all, for, for of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. See that in the days to come, all who have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life, because that what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity, and is striving after the wind. So this is going to be a uh, cheerful message, but hang with me. It was Christmas a couple of uh, years ago, and uh, my wife and I uh, had stayed up a bit after the kids had gone to bed, and uh, this is somewhat uh, rare, and we started getting kind of really tired, and we looked at the clock, and we gasped because it was 2 a.m. Now, for us... uh, this is unusual because for us, 11 o'clock is uh, late. 11.30 is about to derail your day. 12 o'clock is the apocalypse. So 2 o'clock was uh, very, very unusual. So, so what is it that uh, captured our attention and made us lose track of time in this way? Well, it was a piece of cardboard with a picture on it cut up into 1,000 pieces. It was a jigsaw puzzle. And uh, we had just gotten to that point where we were kind of in the groove. I mean, we, were, we went from, you know, one piece every three minutes to one piece every one minute. And all of a sudden, you know, this, this little off-white piece that could be a part of Mary's head covering or a sheep. I mean, it just took pressing urgence that night. And, and we, we, we lost track of time. And I can honestly say I have never, ever lost track of time uh, before that time or since that time than that. You know, as humans, we really like to, uh, to solve puzzles, to assimilate things, to make sense of things, to, to understand. And the author of Ecclesiastes, which uh, I just identified as the preacher, and that's all uh, he is identified as, the preacher, probably King Solomon, the wisest man in the world, but, but uh, there's, there's debate about that. Uh, this preacher set out to put together this puzzle that is life and to put these pieces together and harmonize them. But it wasn't long before he realized that there were pieces of this puzzle that were missing. He ran into enigmas or things that are puzzling or even inexplicable. He learned to live with that tension. And I believe that if we're not going to be frustrated in life, we're going to have to learn with that tension as well. And so we're going to talk about three of these puzzles, three of these enigmas in life, and then talk about what to do with them. Uh, These puzzles are the puzzle of 
work, of justice, and then finally, of knowledge and wisdom. So here's what we're going to be looking at, these three different aspects of, of things that are enigmas. So the first thing when we look at work, I want you to know, is that all throughout Scripture we find that work is good. Work is, is not a result of the fall. God put Adam in the garden to tend it and keep it. However, toilsome work is part of the fall, but work is good. It is meant to be enjoyed. The, the preacher says that work is good, but it's not going to be ultimately fulfilling, and here's why. Uh, although it is one of the premier gifts in this life, and we'll see a few verses up there on this, um, it is, says that it is from the hand of God. So, so work is a gift to men and women. However, it's not fulfilling because of these puzzles, these, these enigmas. It's, it's kind of like uh, any of these things that are good but not fulfilling. You're kind of like the, the turkey dinner. That it's fantastic, and you eat it so much that you swear you're never going to eat again. You know, and then you take a nap, and there's a ball game, and then, you know, a couple hours later, what are you doing? You're browsing the fridge. So it was good, but not ultimately fulfilling. So what is it about work that makes this true? Good, but not ultimately fulfilling. Well, one aspect of it is that uh, originality is impossible. Uh, There's this universal glass ceiling. And here's what the glass ceiling is. There is no book that you can write. There is no discovery that you can make that is going to alter the basic fabric of life. You know, that's not to say that we're not going to make discoveries or that research is bad. We are supposed to do this. We're supposed to govern our our earth and learn about it. But, you know, things may get more convenient. Things may get explained better. Uh, Books will be written. Uh, The next big thing, right, Samsung, will come along. Uh, Phones are going to have one terabyte of storage. You know, planes are going to move away from fossil fuels, and they're going to become, you know, hybrid. I mean, there's all these things that are going to be faster, more convenient, better for for the environment, better in so many ways. But the stuff that really counts, like giving birth and dying, relationships built and broken, careers started, careers ended— Milestones reach, milestones pass. These things will continue no matter whether or not your screen is edge-to-edge or or you've got that huge storage or or whatever the next big thing is, right? So if you think that in your career that uh, they, you know, that they made you and then they broke the mold, right? The preacher says the things that really count, they were before you and they will be after you. So in your career, really there's this glass ceiling. Originality is impossible. Further, we find that legacy is is fragile. You know, we see examples of this almost every day in our modern politics, where a legacy carefully built up is is dismantled. But that is not a modern reality. He's going to give us two examples of, of this fact that legacy is really, really fragile. So one of them Uh, he observed two different rulers. One of them is an old king that is said to be foolish. Now, one interesting thing about this old king is uh, that he had a spectacular rise from power. Somehow, he went from a prison to the throne. Now, after this old king rose up a younger king, a young man, and uh, this young man is said to be wise. He wins the hearts of the people. It says that there is no end to the people, all of whom he led, 
In other words, this young man, because of his wisdom, formed a coalition. He coalesced power. And um, it is acknowledged here that the young man is superior than the old and foolish king. However, the commentary on it is this. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. So your legacy, whether you were foolish, had a great rise to power, or whether you were young and wise, your legacy is this. It is, it is fragile. Uh, just kind of a, a personal experience, it, it cracks me up that this at the time meant so much to me. But uh, when I was in college, I was the president of a, um, a literary society, which is kind of like a, a fraternity, but without a lot of the shenanigans. And, um, and so everything we did in this thing, I, my administration, okay, was going to be one. I, I decided, what do I want to do? I want to do everything for the glory of God with the spirit of excellence, and that's what I emphasize, glory of God with a spirit of excellence. That means my, the uniforms, the outings, the, the, the entertainment that comes before the guys, like everything we did was going to be exactly that. And so I got to the end of my term, and I was kind of waiting to see, you know, who would take after me? Who would, who would take up this mantle and run this, this race of glory to God, spirit of excellence? And the guys elected the guys who were in the back row yucking it up the entire time. Ah, so much for legacy. You know, um, so your legacy is fragile, right? He gives another example of this where you have this story where there's this, this small city that a great king comes and sets up siege works around it. And by his wisdom, a poor and wise man delivers this city from this siege. It doesn't say how. But then immediately says his service is forgotten. In Ecclesiastes 9, you can see this, your legacy, which is wise in good deeds, you may be wise and good in your deeds, is in God's hand. It notes that you cannot predict whether it is love or whether it is hate that you will receive from those who interact with you. Those things are in God's hands. Now, really, that is comforting. My career, what people remember me for, is in the hand of God. So, so that is comforting, but it's also a warning. It says you cannot coerce God because those things are in his hand. And so you see originality really is impossible. Legacy is fragile. And then in your career work, even if you do succeed, success can be very distressing. In Ecclesiastes 2 we see this. We had noted earlier that work is a gift from God. But did you know that not only work itself is a gift from God, but the ability to enjoy the fruits of your labor is a gift from God? God grants you the ability to enjoy your success. Well, we assume that success is its own reward and that if we achieve it, that is the same thing as achieving happiness. But that's not the biblical picture. So this finding enjoyment in our, in our toil, it says it's from the hand of God. You know, occasionally we're remember the, uh, reminded of this. In fact, in the news, even in these last two weeks, we have seen uh, people who reach the pinnacle of their careers, one of them as a chef and one of them as a designer, that ended their own lives. And this is heartbreaking because they reached the pinnacle and they looked around and they could not enjoy it. And you think about that, and it just, it just rends your heart. So 
God gives us that ability. Now, there's another puzzle of success, and that sometimes the pursuit of success is isolating. Now, this verse is not displayed, but um, later he talks about a hard-working, lonely man who, who succeeds. This guy gathers up tons, like the rich man that Jesus talked about. He gathers up tons and tons of fruits, but then he looks around and realizes that he has no one to enjoy it with. So there's another pitfall of success. And then finally, the author notes that your success may benefit somebody who is not worthy. So elsewhere, we find this in Ecclesiastes 2, that the author hated his successes on earth because he realized that no matter how hard he worked on earth, he might, or he was definitely going to lose control of it in the end. He worried that it was going to be left to a fool. Now, if this is biographical, if this is indeed King Solomon, his son, Rehoboam, was a fool. Uh, Rehoboam, the people came to him and said, said um, your, your father taxed us a lot. Here, relieve the burden from us. And he said, oh, you think he was bad. And he cracked down harder, and he split the kingdom. And so uh, you're going to possibly leave it to somebody who is foolish. Now, regarding work, you look at these, these enigmas, these puzzles, and if you are expecting your career or your work or whatever your, your occupation is, is to fulfill you, these things are going to run against it, and there's going to be tension in it. Now, you may say, you know what, I'm not, not really a career person. I'm, I'm more of a cause person. I, 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 I work for justice, and uh, justice is a, is a beautiful thing. But just like work, justice also has tensions. It also has enigmas. You know, we expect a perfect God to ensure perfect retribution on this earth, but when he does not, it really can throw us off. So we see that justice is good, but it's also not ultimately fulfilling. You know, the place that we would expect justice, and he turns to kind of expand on this a little bit, the place that we would expect justice, of course, would be in the courts, right? That's where you would do it. But he observed in the place that he least expects it, in the place of justice and righteousness, it says, there's injustice. You know, it is everywhere you turn, from traffic courts to um, on the international stage. I mean, right now there is an American pastor in Asia Minor that is being held by an authoritarian uh, leader as a bargaining chip. Anybody who looks at these, this situation that this man is in would say that the charges against him are, are totally trumped up, and it is very clear that he is being held so that pressure could be, be asserted on another country. That is injustice. Just recently, the Supreme Court handed down a decision where uh, there was a, a uh, commission on human rights that it ruled, that it saw very clearly that it was antagonistic to this man's faith. And even though they, they ruled in favor of this gentleman, uh, he had had years where it looked like his business was going to be fined into oblivion. And so I'm glad justice happened in the end, but um, during the time, justice does not happen in courts. So the preacher is quick to note that this lack of justice on earth does not mean that there's going to be lack of justice in the future. Praise God. He says later on that God will judge in the future. But in the meantime, we we ask the question, why does God allow this? Instead of answering that question, he's going to draw a comparison. And that comparison is kind of troubling to us as well. 
in Ecclesiastes 3, he observed that men and women die in the same manner that animals do. And to the observer, there's no difference to what happens to their spirits. What's his point? The point is the fact that there's no discernible difference between a man and a woman dying, that manner in which they die, and an animal dying, demonstrates that what we observe on this earth may irritate our sense of justice. That what we see under the sun on this earth belies certain spiritual realities. And so for this argument, he assumes that humans are more noble than animals. Now, there are those today who would dispute that point, obviously, but the preacher saw it as self-evident. When he asks, who knows if our spirits are treated differently, he's not denying that there's a resurrection, but he is stating that, that you cannot prove and I cannot prove that there is a difference um, of afterlife on this earth. Now, we know that the, the afterlife, the resurrection, is something that is revealed to us by God. Like, if he didn't reveal it to us in Scripture, we could not put a scientific test and say, yes, this is true. We may suspect it, but like he said, you cannot by observing men and women pass away and animals pass away that their souls or their spirits are treated differently. So in the same way that we look at, at, at animals dying and, and men and women dying, and it seems like the same thing, in the same way this, where we're like, that doesn't seem quite right. That's the way justice works on this earth. We, we see that, that justice should happen on this earth, but it doesn't. But there's a spiritual reality that happens after that. You know, as long as this tension exists between what should be and, and what is, the pursuit of justice is going to be a very frustrating endeavor. It's not only true of injustice in the courts. We also see it um, just in general life. And we could call this inverted rewards. Virtue is not always rewarded, and wickedness is not always punished. Good men and women get what bad men and women deserve, and vice versa. So as an illustration, the preacher uh, gives another illustration, where we see a very, very evil man who is an impudent evil man. He is a hypocrite. It says that this evil man enters in and out of the places of holiness. In other words, he was a churchgoer. And then this evil man dies, and he is buried to universal praise and celebration. And he goes on to note that even worse, because God did not bring justice in this man's life, that other people were emboldened to emulate this evil person. Again, right after that, the author is really quick to affirm his faith in God's justice. Just listen to this one. He says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. You know, while we wait on God's justice, we're vexed on this earth. The only proper response is found in chapter 9. The preacher says that he will lay it to heart and leave the disposing of it in the hands of God. And so we've seen a couple of enigmas, puzzles. In work, you're going to be puzzled about that. If, you, if career or causes is, is your thing, you're going to be puzzled about that. But, you know, we might expect those things to be filled with puzzles. But, but this next one, knowledge and, and wisdom, 
Oh, we're kind of surprised to see it. So there are certain places in, in Ecclesiastes where the preacher lists uh, things that are vanity. And so he'll say prestige is vanity, labor is vanity, wealth is vanity, pleasure is vanity. But then he says, and we heard this read by, by Evan a little bit earlier, he says, what happens to the fool will happen to me. What did I gain from becoming excessively or so very wise? Even wisdom has got these puzzles. And so wisdom or knowledge is ultimately good, but is good, but it's not ultimately fulfilling. So we know that really wisdom, which is the ability to, to apply knowledge rightly, is good because everywhere we're told to secret, seek it. Everywhere, um, Scripture says that it is a treasure to be sought. It's more valuable than gold and, and gems, that, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that, that it is good to be a wise king. However, it's not fulfilling because it, it, even wisdom can't protect us from certain realities. For one thing, it can't tell the future. The preacher says that God has programmed a certain yearning in our hearts. The way he put it is that God has, has put eternity into the hearts of men and women. And here's, here's what I think he's saying here. In our hearts is a desire to look at the past and the present and the future, even into eternity, and to make some sort of sense out of it. But eternity is the realm of God, and we cannot enter it right now. We're very grateful that God has revealed something of eternity in his word, but so much of it is, is clouded. And the way this works on a day-to-day, you know, we, we want to know the future. We want, we want to know the past. We want to, to make good decisions. Uh, we see it in investments a lot. The preacher actually gives investment advice to this effect. He says, diversify because you have no idea how your investments are going to go. And here's how he does it. He says, in the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand, for you don't know what will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. You know, you ask the the dot-com investors of yesteryear or the people who are trying to navigate cryptocurrency currently, and and you just realize it it is a wild west. You don't know what is going to work. You know, your knowledge, even if you're a very wise person, cannot tell the future. Further, you know what wisdom does to us? It doesn't protect us from pain. It makes it worse. Uh, He notes in chapter 1 that he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Knowledge is always better than ignorance, but it comes with a price tag, we find, more sorrow. And why is that? Because when you have knowledge, you're painfully aware of how things ought to be, how they should be. You know, and isn't it true that sometimes knowledge of how things should be or ought to be when they don't go that way, it, it makes it more difficult? I think about uh, childbirth and, and, say, an epidural. So this is something that's supposed to make that experience so much more better. And let's just say somebody said, no, I, I'm going to forgo that. I'm go, I'm go, we're going to go natural. And then because of the intensity of it, you, you say, I want the epidural, but it's too late. What does the knowledge of it do? The knowledge of it makes your present painful situation even worse. And that's what knowledge does all throughout life. So it actually makes things more painful, we find out. Further, it cannot guarantee success. 
And so we have a verse here that says that the race is not to the swift, the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happens to them all. Now, this is not to say that the skilled will never come out on top, but they might not. You've heard the expression, uh, I'd better be lucky than good. This is just an acknowledgement that, that somebody may be less skillful, less prepared for you, and still come out on top. And so this is looking at it from a human perspective. Merit's not always rewarded, and the world can be very, very unfair. And while preparation and skill can increase your chances of success, it certainly does not ensure them. And everything in us just cries out that this is not right, yet this is true. Further, we find that even if you have played everything right, you have judged everything, you have invested skillfully, you have, you have, you have predicted the markets, you, you've, you've, you've ascertained the future, you've, you've done all this, folly in a high place can cancel out your wisdom just like that. Foolishness, we find out by the preacher, is often promoted. He says that folly is set in many high places. So this doesn't happen rarely. This happens all the time. And, of course, when a foolish person is elevated to a position of authority, uh, elevation has consequences. And so you could have a single foolish ruler or a, a foolish body of rulers that could take, for instance, your investments and because of out-of-control spending and inflation could undermine a wise man or woman's investment just like that, and they have no control over it. And there went the nest egg. It is outside your control when a foolish person undermines you. Well, now, as I said, this is a very, very cheerful message, right? Um, I hope you understand. So work, justice, career, cause, um, and even wisdom and knowledge cannot protect you. You're not going to figure these things out. And so how how do we deal with this fact that these things can't fulfill us? There are enigmas or puzzles that are not likely to be solved under the sun. Well, one possibility is to become cynical and jaded. Uh, there's a, a famous novel that probably many of you read by a guy named Kurt Vonnegut, and, and it's a war novel. And in this war novel, there's a lot of death. And every time somebody dies, he says, and so it goes. And it just without any comment. And so so-and-so got killed, and so it goes. So he just gets this, this kind of this war-weary, world-weary kind of like, oh, well, that's just the way it is. I guess another possibility would be to, uh, to say, que sera, sera, right? What will be, will be. And that would be fatalism, where you say, it's pretty much outside my control. I'm not even going to try. But neither of these things give God glory. And so, two applications here. First of all, do not expect your work, or your cause, or your knowledge to protect you from the sting of life. You cannot invest those things with the way that you are fulfilled or your worth, or else you will find that tension become almost unbearable. It will become too painful. And so do not expect them to fill something for which they were not designed. Second, don't do that, but do take the master pieces from the hand of God. And here's what I mean by that. You know, I mentioned the, uh, the draw of this jigsaw puzzle on us earlier. So what I didn't tell you is after that fateful 2 a.m. night, 
I guess, morning, that fateful morning, uh, w- things progressed to the point that um, we began to see things put together. And as the pieces got fewer and fewer, uh, all of a sudden we realized that there were spaces that we had tried to fill literally hundreds of times that simply did not have corresponding pieces. That's right. We were missing pieces. Of course, an epic search uh, ensued. Kids, look everywhere in this. And, and actually, they showed up. One was in the Lego bin, and one was in the bottom of the games bin. And of course, you know, we, those were paraded and finally put into place, and, and, and we were very happy. But let's just say that two pieces were missing, just for sake of illustration, and an epic search uh, yielded one of those pieces, okay? And so we put that in place, but the other one never showed because it was not missing, it was not lost, it was being withheld. In other words, it was in somebody's pocket, and it stayed in somebody's pocket. That's what we're dealing with here. As we work on a beautiful puzzle given to us by the Creator, and in one of the most famous passages, we find that life is a tapestry of birth and death, marriage and giving in marriage, planting and harvest, killing and healing, breaking down and building up, weeping and laughing, mourning and dancing, seeking and losing, silence and speaking, war and peace. Like the preacher, through our best efforts, we might seek and find some of the answers to these questions, but the enigmas of life are the peace that are being withheld. They're in the Creator's pocket. He may withhold that peace, but in his place, he extends something instead for our time on this earth, and that's what I call the master peace. Ecclesiastes 12, also a well-known verse. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. These enigmas of life drive us to humility to take from his hand the peace that he gives to us, labeled fear. In other words, to reverence him with awe, to reverence him and to keep his commandment. That is the masterpiece right there, to acknowledge that it is his right to do do so. One of my favorite children's tracks asked the question, who will be king? And the point is that there are only two ways to live, either on the throne of your own life in rebellion to God or with God as your king and taking the masterpiece from the hand of God and saying, you know, God, I have questions that may not be answered, but in the meantime, I will fill that gap with this peace that you have given me and I will say, you are God and I am not and I will keep your commands. So we have to choose not, not cynicism where we're just kind of like, yeah, whatever. Not fatalism like, well, it doesn't matter what I do. We're supposed to be active and striving and and expectant while at the same time being humble and submissive before God. I'm going to put a quote up here by a man that I respect uh, very, very much. This man says, when there's a gap between the wisdom and the ways of God and my understanding of the wisdom and ways of God, You must fill that gap with trust. That man is my father, and he told me that many times. My heart is for those who are hurting and confused today by what life has brought your way, 
to reject cynicism, reject fatalism, reject striving and striving and striving in order to trust the one who holds the enigmas of life in his pocket and will make them plain in his time if he wills. In the meantime, we can learn a lot from a song that was probably designed for children, and it says this, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Would you pray with me? Father, over and over we are brought to the, uh, the end of our understanding. It uh, feels like uh, some of us more than others, and I'm speaking of myself, where we can't quite figure everything out. We lack the wisdom that we need. But Lord, we take great comfort in the fact that you designed it that way, that we can put our entire trust in you as a father who has our best interests in mind, and that you are inscrutable in so many ways. So, Lord, I pray as a church family that you would help us to avoid those, those false responses and that you would help us to come to you, as we sang earlier, as a child, as a daughter, as a son of God, and to look up to you as our Father. Lord, I pray that that would be our response. And, Lord, we know that in your time you will make these plain. In the meantime, Lord, we reverence you. Lord, and we will obey your commands. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name.